What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast. And today we're going to be studying the book of Exodus as well as the book of Matthew. And here we're moving over into our second month. So this is officially week five. We're going from January 29th to February 4th. As we study the Bible, we are deep into the book of Exodus. And something very significant happens in chapter 19 where we have some time markers. In Exodus 19, it says in verse 1 that they arrived at Mount Sinai in the third month of the first year. Now, remember, time is being marked from the time of the Exodus, uh, specifically when Passover took place. So this is three months later. The people of Israel have left Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea, and they have gone down to the Sinai Peninsula, and they are now at Mount Sinai, which if you look up, where is Mount Sinai? It's kind of debated. It's not, we're not totally sure where it is. And scholars have some good ideas of where they think it was. But the point is, it's somewhere in that Sinai Peninsula that's now Saudi Arabia. And uh, yeah, so they show up in the third month and they stay there until Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, when it says that they left on the second month of the second year. So they are there for 11 months. So that's a good, important thing to think about because we are going to really slow down in the timeline. You know, sometimes you're reading the book of Genesis and we're covering whole generations in a chapter. That's not happening here. We're going to get a lot of information, a lot of revelation from God's word is going to be revealed at Mount Sinai. So the end of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers all take place in this one year time span. And it's hard to reckon this with years because a lot of it is not narrative. There's going to be some narrative sections really from chapter 20 all the way to chapter 31. You're going to get laws. And then the narrative kind of picks back up in chapter 32, 33, 34, and then kind of goes back to laws and and other you know more legal proceedings, not so much narrative sections. But something significant happens in chapter 19. We get the Mosaic Covenant. It's, it's really formally introduced. And I think verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19 do this really well. They say this, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is God to Moses, to the Israelites, basically trying to say, you know, I've got these rules that I'm going to give you, and I want you to know that there are some stipulations with these rules. If you keep these rules, you will be my treasured people. Now, there's an aspect of the covenant that is unconditional, and it's this, that God is going to keep his promises to his people, and he's going to do it either through blessing or either through curses. So there's an aspect that is unconditional about God's promises, but then there is an aspect that is conditional. He says, if you will obey if you'll hear my voice and obey and keep my covenant. It sounds very similar to the language that we read in Deuteronomy, which is basically the Sinai covenant given to the next generation about 40 years later. So this is Moses to this initial group of Israelites who left the land, and it's it's the, the outline of God's covenant for the people of Israel. Like, are you going to keep my rules? Are you going to be my one nation among many nations that actually is holy to me. Now, that doesn't mean everything they do is going to be holy. And he doesn't even say every last thing you need to do has to be perfect or else you're not my people. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, are you going to keep this set of rules or not? Is your nation, is your community going to do this? 
Or are you each going to be king in your own eyes, as we see in the book of Judges? Are you always going to do what you want to do and not listen to me? That's the that's the question, and that's the invitation, I suppose you could say, that God gives to Israel on Mount Sinai. And ultimately, that invitation goes all the way through till the time of Jesus, where Jesus does something uh, new and better that we get to enter into, uh, which the book of Hebrews talks about later. So uh, just some notes. This is the Mosaic Covenant. There's some aspects that are conditional, other aspects that are unconditional, right? God is going to uh, keep his promises no matter what, but it's going to be conditioned on whether or not these people do what they say. God's going to deliver on certain promises based on what people do. So uh, those two things need to be held in the proper tension. It's conditional and unconditional. Also, we see the Ten Commandments happen right after that. In chapter 20, we see these 10 most important rules that God gives, and really they're just the first rules, and they're so important we know that they're etched by God's own finger, however he did that. They're etched into these uh, rock tablets, which actually have to be replaced because Moses throws them down in chapter 32, but we'll get to that later. Uh, But these commandments are key and central to the way that Israelites should think about their relationship with each other and their relationship with God. And immediately we have some questions like, all right, do we obey the Ten Commandments as Christians today? Now, I know that we live in the New Covenant era. We live in the New Testament times, which is different than the Mosaic Covenant. And we live kind of under some different rules here. But do we keep the Ten Commandments? Well, nine out of those Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament as commands for us. So I'd say for the most part, yes. And even some important things that Jesus has to say, particularly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So in one sense, yes, we are honoring our father and mother. We are keeping these commandments. But there's another aspect that because we're not living under the Mosaic covenant, the way we express our obedience to these commands is different. Like with the Sabbath, that's the the one out of 10 that's not repeated for us to necessarily follow. But you could argue from the book of Hebrews that we do keep the Sabbath. It's just we keep it figuratively through what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest, and one day we'll enter that Sabbath rest. So uh, for the most part, yeah, we, we do keep the Ten Commandments. And if you ever hear people preach sermons on the Ten Commandments, you might be surprised at how the simple rules of God really have a big impact on, on the way we think about God and the way that we live. Which ultimately leads us to the biggest question that we should ask as we read the law of God is how should we read the law, right? Do we read it in a dismissive way where we say, yeah, this was for God's people a long time ago, so it has nothing to do with me. Do we read it in a disbelieving way? Like, I don't really like God's law because, you know, there are some places in the New Testament that do say that the law is harmful for us, right? Like Romans 7 says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me, right? So there are some verses that seem to have a negative view of the law, right? Even if you think theologically, like what does Paul say about the law? Is it overwhelmingly good or is it kind of like a bad negative word? Even if you read other theologians, like you read Luther and how he talks about the law, there's all this negativity about the law. And I think that's warranted and important in its context. But if you also read what those people say about the law, they're talking about an aspect of the law. 
the, the part of the law that condemns us and kills us. I mean, even in that passage, I was quoting Romans 7, 11, but the next verse, Romans 7, 12 says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So is the law good or bad? Well, the law is good. And I think this should challenge us. I, I want you to think, do you really believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable? Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe, like Paul says earlier, the verse before that, that was in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, do you really believe that the law and the scriptures, all scriptures, are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus? Do you believe that the law can set you up to do that? Well, if you don't believe that, you don't agree with Paul, and you don't agree with the rest of the scripture writers that seem to say the law is what sets us up to be able to understand the gospel, it sets us up to understand God. It sets us up to understand all these different truths about ourselves and about sin. And without the law, we are seriously impoverished in our understanding about God and ourselves. Just listen to a couple verses of what godly people had to say about the law of God. In Psalm 119, 97, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the night, all the day. And then in Psalm 119, 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119.92 If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Psalm 19, verse 7 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 119.18 Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Romans 7.22 I delight in the law in my inner being. Psalm 119.53, hot indignation seizes me because people forsake your law. Okay, so that's just a few verses, but God's people love God's law, and I want to challenge you, what is your view of God's law? Because if you read it, and, and it's just a chore, and it's just an arduous thing that you just have to, like, okay, now I got to do my daily Bible reading today, I would challenge you to change your attitude about God's law. I mean, what does God's law teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us who God is, right? You're going to learn we have a holy God. We have a very just and righteous and fair God. We have a good God who, who's merciful to his people. We have a God also who is a God of rules and order, right? Sometimes we think about how God loves us and we hear things like, you know, you know, God loves you. You know, Jesus loves you. And we think, wow, that's amazing. He must not care how I live. Well, just know if you find out that somebody loves you, what you might need to do is a little bit of work on, well, who is this person who loves me? Because if this person says they love me, but then they say they have these rules and they're a God of order and, and commandments, well then, you know, if we love him back, we should respect his rules and his commandments, right? Well, Jesus says that very thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So one huge thing is we learn about who this God really is. I mean, God will introduce himself in Exodus 34 in a way that is so amazing and poetic, so much so that it really captures the imagination of the, the Bible authors after this. And David will repeat this phrase over and over again in the Psalms. And Daniel will pray this phrase back to God. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God says about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Like, what do you see presented about God in that short little two-verse section? You see God is good. You see this God is holy. You see that this God is merciful and gracious, but you also see that this God is just. This God is righteous. We have a God of rules and order, and that should be a comfort to us. It shouldn't scare us that God is a God of rules and order, although we do break those rules. We know God is a God of mercy, but it is a very good gift that our Father is a Father of of order and goodness. So other things that we learn in the law, we learn to promote life and promote justice among other uh, others who are God's image bearers, right? Think about the the classes of people that are described in the law and what's God always saying to them? Show them justice, right? We see infants that aren't even born. In Exodus 21, we're going to read how, you know, if you were to kill some baby that's not even born yet in their mother's womb, it's life for life, right? God requires that your life be taken. That's how serious God takes protecting unborn life. We see also God has a care for people who are enslaved. He says, hey, you Israelites, you were enslaved, so you better take care of anybody who's in that position as well. You better not treat them bad because they're slaves, even sojourners. He says, what if people are passing through? This isn't their homeland. How should you treat them? Well, you should treat them with justice. Multiple times, you're going to run across the phrase, don't pervert justice. The idea there is, Don't, in your partiality, twist a just application of God's law. A couple times he says, yeah, don't take a bribe because a bribe blinds the eyes of the just, right? And then he says also, don't favor the rich because you're greedy and you want kickbacks. Oh, but also don't favor the poor out of pity for them if they've broken the law, right? So we should have a just application of the law. I mean, these are real life things. This is not, you know, just ancient stuff. This is this this influences the way we think about even our society today. So, that's very important stuff that you're going to be reading. You're also going to be reading about the building of the tabernacle. Uh, one thing if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me say, I said it often when I we shot those videos was that the Bible does not have any pictures, but God paints many pictures. And that's because he'll take multiple chapters just describing the color and the size and the shape of the way that the tabernacle was supposed to be. So this is a good section for you to get a study Bible and look at some pictures because it's really helpful. Uh, And then the narrative I said picks back up in chapter 32, 33, 34. We see the golden calf. So it's just so interesting that this God is that is so holy and so righteous. And he even says, and sometimes I'm too righteous and I'm too holy to go with these people. That same God is delivering his law, and at the very moment that he's delivering the law on the mountain, then the people below the mountain who are supposed to be God's covenant people, they're building a golden calf, and they're worshiping it, and they're committing massive sexual immorality and feasting. It's like a basically a rave is happening uh, beneath Mount Sinai, and Aaron oversees it, and he knows about it, and it's just terrible. And it should be an illustration for us Even in the moment that God's law and his righteous and good rules are given, God's people are falling short, far short. They're not even just making mistakes. They're doing wrong actively. 
And it's just really bad stuff is happening there. So we see that happen in chapter 32. And then the Levites basically take their place as the priests because they're the ones that step up and are willing to, in zeal, take care of the problems in their society. We see that God sends a plague on the people as judgment for the golden calf. And he tells Moses, hey, you guys can go into the land, but I'm not going to go with you because I'm too holy. And then Moses intercedes and says, no, God, you need to go with us. Because if you don't go with us, we will not survive. We cannot continue as a nation. And God says, yes, I'll go. And Moses asks one more question. He says, God, will you show me your glory? And that's what sets us up to receive the clearest revelation of God's character in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is a verse that we should all be thankful for. We should all be grateful that Moses asked God the question, show me your glory in chapter 33. Then in chapter 35 and 36, which is the end of our reading this week, we will read about how the people of Israel start building the tabernacle, which will be very important for the rest of their worship later on. So we'll get into more about the law when we study Leviticus next week. But at this time, we'll, we'll switch over to Matthew chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. So we're still understanding what discipleship is from Matthew. We're still understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, and then in chapter 20 of Matthew, we're going to get a parable about labors in a vineyard to see that God's grace is, is really great. We're going to see how that Jesus has disciples who want to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you know, who's really going to be greatest is whoever among you becomes most like a servant, which should teach us about what it means to really be uh, leaders and what it really means to be servants in the church and with God's people. We got to be willing to be last if we want to be first one day. Um, and then we see in chapter 21, Jesus shows up to Jerusalem. He's riding a donkey to fulfill what's prophesied about him in Zechariah 9.9. He comes to his temple. Like, you know, think about even as we read the tabernacle, whose tabernacle is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ's. When the temple's built and it gets dedicated with Solomon, whose temple is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ's temple. So when he shows up and he feels this sense of indignation, like it says, like the verse we quoted earlier, Psalm 119.53, hot indignation seizes me because people forsake your law. In his righteous anger, he drives people out. And he says, this is corrupt. This is this is bad. We see the even the, the just impulse of Jesus on display. Um, and really, he comes in and, and rebukes what's happening. And it really sounds like the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and the book of Haggai, where in the Old Testament, these prophets basically said, what's going on in the worship service is evil and wrong and missing the point. So Jesus corrects that. And then in chapter 21 and 22, we see four very interesting parables. We see a living parable of the fig tree, which does not bear fruit. Uh, and then the next one is a parable of two sons. One does God's will, one doesn't. Then a parable of the tenants. Uh, you could accept God's messengers in his message or not. And then the wedding feast, which is where you can either accept God's invitation or not. And all these parables, what they do is they basically say, you've got to respond to Jesus or else. Bear fruit or else. Do God's will or else. Accept God's messengers or else. Accept God's invitation for salvation or else. And these are directed to different groups of people. Most of them are directed to the Israelites, the self-righteous people, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And then I think the wedding feast is really directed to everybody who's there. Like, are you going to respond to Jesus or not? 
Then, after Jesus has that round of four, uh, basically, uh, parables that he gives, he gets four sets of questions. First from the Herodians, then the Sadducees, then the Pharisees, and then Jesus asks his own question. So, he really gets three questions and responds with a fourth question. So, what did the Herodians want to know? Well, they said, uh, you know, we're Roman supporters, we like Herod, we like Rome, but we're also Israelites. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And instead of giving a yes or no, Jesus gives two commands. He says, well, give to Caesar what Caesar's, right? And if he's got a coin and we owe him taxes, then sure, you can pay your taxes, but you better give to God what is God's too, uh, which is a bigger statement about our devotion to God. Uh, then the Sadducees ask him a question in the temple. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe, actually, they don't believe in the Bible outside of the Torah. So those first five books, they believe the law, but they don't believe the prophets, they don't take the, the writings of the Psalms as the true word of God. And because of that, there was a doctrine that developed among the Sadducees that basically said there is no resurrection of the dead. And because they couldn't find clear enough proof or evidence in the Torah, which is funny because Jesus uh, will use the Torah to say, you know, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And do you notice how God always introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you know what that means? That means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although they died, are that means they're still alive because he's the God of the living, not the dead. So he uses the Torah, the only part of the scriptures that they actually believed, to answer their questions. Uh, an easy way to remember this, it's kind of a Bible school joke, is that the, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in a resurrection. They thought when you died, that was it. So that's not my joke. That's one of those jokes that they, uh, they share in Bible school. So uh, there you go. Then... Last group of people that ask some questions are the Pharisees. And a Pharisee says, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus responds not by saying, the commandments don't matter. Don't do whatever you want. He says, no, the greatest commandment is Deuteronomy 6.4, love God. And the second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18 is how he responds. Then Jesus asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, well, he's the son of David. And he said to them back, well, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And then he's going to quote Psalm 110 verse 1 saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says, well, then if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him. So that's a great psalm to do a deep dive on. It's a messianic psalm all about Jesus the Messiah and how, just like how Psalm 2 is one of those messianic psalms about how there's going to be a son of God who rules and Jesus is coming along to show the world, that's me. David was talking about me. I am David's Lord and David's son all wrapped up into one. Which leads right into Matthew 23, which is a chapter where Jesus will rebuke the Pharisees for being hypocritical. It's a section that's very interesting. It's really the counterpart to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. This is really the other side of the Beatitudes. In those sections, Jesus says, Blessed is the one, blessed is the one, blessed is the one, which are all statements of God's favor on people who are this thing or do this thing or act this way. Woes are what Jesus says in this section. That's the opposite. Curses on the people who do this. Curses on the people who do that. Curses on the people who are like that. And in this section, it's all about 
the Pharisees. So one thing that he'll say is they're hypocritical. They, they, they say one thing and they make people work, but they're unwilling to lift a finger. We see that they might look righteous on the outside, but on the inside, it's like they're full of dead people's bones, which should be an important callback for us to Matthew 5, 20, where Jesus says to the people like you and me, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of God. What that means is if there's no evidence and fruit of a person who doesn't just like do some external right things like the Pharisees, but actually is righteous from the heart, then what evidence, what fruit do you have that on the last day in judgment that you'll be saved? Like, remember how this book is going to talk about judgment even from the beginning. In Matthew 3, Jesus, uh, even before he preaches, you got John the Baptist preaching, saying, hey, there's wheat and there's chaff. There's people who bear fruit and there's people who don't bear fruit. Jesus in the parables that we read this week is going to say, there's people who do God's will and there's people who don't do God's will. These Pharisees were not like really righteous people. They were externally righteous, but they were not truly righteous because they did not do God's will from the heart. So we'll read more about that next week, but it's a very important section that we want to start to wrap our minds around. And even as you read, we got so much that Jesus is going to teach us about what it means to be his disciple that I'd encourage you as you're reading the gospel of Matthew, keep marking ways that you can improve and, and you can really have your heart be transformed to be the kind of disciple Jesus wants you to be. So thanks for reading. We'll get back to you next week with another one of these DBR Snapshot podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get these delivered every single week. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week for the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast. Oh, 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 oh,